Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Ushma Garg, to our show today. Ushma is the founder and CEO of Gobble, a national 15-minute meal kit service that was recently acquired by Intelligent Foods for nine figures. After the acquisition, Ushma is now the CEO of both Gobble and health-focused meal delivery brand Sunbasket. Ushma's success is not just about starting and building an incredible multi-million dollar brand, but it's also about the resilience and perseverance that she demonstrated during the early days of the business. Her journey was filled with highs and lows, failures and wins that truly will inspire anybody who listens in today. She shares with us how it took years for Gobble to finally hit product market fit and how she managed her resilience and mental health when she barely had any money in the bank for Gobble and investors were telling her to sell and get rid of her company. During this interview, we also talked to Ushma about her experience raising money from investors and the lessons and mistakes that she learned there. And she also gives us a real and authentic view of who shouldn't be going down the venture capital path and the different options that are available when it comes to raising money. She also talks about how cash is king, but why profitability is freedom, which I love, and why it's so important to know your numbers. We also get a very transparent view of what it's like to quote unquote, make it as an entrepreneur as someone who has built this incredible business and successfully sold and so much more. So I'm excited for this one. It is a masterclass for entrepreneurship and it has so many gems for all of us to keep in mind. Welcome to the show, Ushma. Thank you so much, Yasmin. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, I truly admire you as a person, as an entrepreneur. So when your team reached out to have you on, I was like 1000%. I wish she was even with us earlier. So I'm really excited to jump into it. I know there's a lot that we can talk about in business and just so many gems that you have from your experience. So I'm truly, it's an, it's an honor. So thank you again. So I'd actually love to start with a higher level question and talk about comparison. You know, you mentioned this in another interview and it really resonated that so many of us, right, including myself, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others and even our businesses, right, with other businesses. So I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think are maybe some steps that we can take to really break free from that kind of thinking? Yeah, well, I think I'm very picky about the inputs that I allow in my life. I think the media especially enjoys pitting businesses against each other and comparing brands. And so instead of seeing that as something that I can't control and coming at me, I switched perspective to seeing that as something that I can control and actually saying, hey, using that as a superpower and basically knowing that other people like comparisons. So if we're out there and for example, for our company saying, hey, who's better, Gobble or Blue Apron, Gobble or HelloFresh, I now see that as a way of advertising to potentially get just our name out there. The more we're talked about, our name is out there, but not really as something that dictates our self-worth or worth as a brand. 
that's really powerful. And I'm curious, like earlier in your journey, did you always have that mentality? Was it in you? Or did you ever compare yourself as an entrepreneur or early in the business? I'd love to just kind of hear how that was. Well, for me growing up, I felt like a bit of an outsider. My parents are immigrants. There weren't that many people that looked like me in school. And they were always encouraging me to apply for different opportunities for different student groups or to apply to different schools. And that kind of application process was me applying myself on my own for bigger opportunities. So I think from a young age, I experienced more the effort that I was putting into initiatives and focused on conquering various areas of my life. And that's kind of carried through. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see that. You know, you have this innate ability to focus on yourself, stay very clear on your motives and and your goals. And I know you briefly mentioned, you know, in your childhood, you were applying for different things. I know there was a story that I'd love for you to bring up because it feels like it shows a lot about your resilience and just general work ethic, which we'll get into about like you not getting into some school for years. I mean, it was mind blowing, but I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. My parents wanted me to get this opportunity at one of the best schools in Dallas, Texas. It was a girls' school in my case, and I applied to get into the school from preschool, first grade, second grade, third grade, and you know, to show how long it took, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then finally got accepted into the school in seventh grade. But as a young child, to face that kind of rejection and every year at the same time to have my parents say, Oh, go take the ERBs and you're gonna try again, I think ultimately I appreciated that win and opportunity more when it happened. That really shaped my thinking around that if you keep trying and you're willing to go all the way, in fact, you can have a 100% guaranteed chance of success. And so part of competing with yourself and not with others is knowing that it might take longer, it might look different, but everybody can do anything just about how much you're willing to put in and how long you're willing to stick with it. Man, that is really powerful to learn something like that so early on and like truly building the resilience for years. I mean, it's not like one year, two year, three year, you didn't get in. Yeah, it's fascinating because I also think even looking at my journey, because I feel like I also kind of do a good job being in difficult moments. I don't know if I'm inviting myself in those purposefully, but my life is always like, whether it's business or I'm changing careers and I'm like, why is it okay for me? And I look back on my life and I was like, wow, nothing was really given to me per se. And I've always had to work for it. And that's all I kind of know. So I don't really have this expectation of things coming easy. I have a more longer term approach and very similar to you the confidence of if you work hard, it will eventually come. So it's amazing that you've also fostered that from a young age. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit because there's a few, you know, you've done a few different businesses and I want to make sure we touch upon all of them. But I actually want to talk about your first business, Anapada. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. And it was such a pivotal moment, not only because it was maybe your first entrepreneurial journey, but it really was you know, really had a big impact to your health and well-being, which I think is important to talk about. So can you kind of reflect on that moment in your life and really maybe what the inspiration was for the business and maybe some of the challenges that you faced during that first venture of yours? Sure. Well, the inspiration came from a genuine, interested passion of mine and problem that I observed when I was in college at Stanford. I was running this group called Stanford Women in Business, and there were 400 women looking for jobs or their first jobs in finance, consulting, hedge funds, Hollywood, you name it. And Mm -hmm. so getting elected to be president of that group exposed me to all these companies also trying to hire 
and the problem of connecting people to jobs in the most successful way and one that perhaps could lead them to a full-time opportunity that lasts for a long period. So my first company, sometimes people say Anapada or Anapada, and it means to achieve in Swahili. And it's sort of the first round of everything. And so it's one of the only domains that I could afford and buy. And so it's kind of embodying what you're looking for, but in, in a different language. It was basically a recruiting tool and meant to help students find their best fit jobs after school. So the inspiration came from a purpose that could have fueled me for a very long time. One of the biggest lessons I learned in my first business is that 80% of your attention and time will be spent serving who is paying you. In this business, my mission was about helping the students, but who was paying me were the companies. And so they had different goals. They wanted to recruit based on different metrics. They wanted different products. It didn't end up being helping the students find the right fit, but rather the companies fill specific specs or diversity candidates or whatnot for who they wanted to hire. While we could do that, the same purpose wasn't there. And that led to a lot of thinking of if this was right for me long-term and those impacts on my mental health and well-being ultimately. So I learned that lesson and made sure that any business I would do going forward, what you're getting paid for is what you're passionate about, number one. And number two, and this is still a struggle for me, is the idea that sacrifice isn't sexy. There's a big difference between working hard for something you love and being in flow or kind of the grit it takes to get to a goal. And then there's this blurry line when it transitions into something where you're really sacrificing for a long time and it's stretching you or you're feeling depleted and that becomes sort of burnout. I think many of us who are high achievers struggle with that staying on one side of that line. However, in that business, when I was working so hard day in and day out, but not feeling that sense of meaningful work or purpose, it led more to that burnout or sacrifice aspect. And luckily, ultimately, to finding Gobble through solving my own problems, needing health back in my life again. There's a few thoughts that I have about what you said. First one is, People always ask me, they always are curious about like, I'm starting this business and I'm always asking, what's your why? Are you really aligned with your mission? And it sounds so basic, but similar to what you said, running a business is so difficult, even when you are in flow, right? There's still sacrifices you have to make. It's still, there's still going to be hardship. And if you don't have that drive of mission or feel like you're making an impact, it just makes it so much more difficult. So I'm always like, the best hack you can have is truly find something that you're excited about because you will still have those hard days. And at least that excitement will still kind of keep you through, which we'll eventually talk about gobble. But I just think that's just so powerful. And what a great thing to learn early in your entrepreneurial journey, even though I know it it was still so difficult. But then you also mentioned it was really the first time you were thinking about your health. I know growing up, I believe your dad was very tapped into health and wellness. You were doing all the right things. And now you're kind of in college, living on your own, kind of nearing burnout, dealing with some like mental health issues of just going through a tough time in your life. So what were maybe some of those epiphanies you had around like, okay, Ushma, like I really need to start taking care of myself. Like this is not acceptable anymore. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think our culture today is way more attuned to self-care and mental health. And a decade ago, it may not have been so much at the forefront culturally. So really at that time, the first thing, at least from our family's perspective, was that food was not just fuel, but it's nourishment, it's love, it's a sense of home. 
it's a safety, it's a place to come back to. And I was missing all of these other emotional benefits that come with home cooked food, but rather eating this kind of like soulless food that's like takeout. That's not even real food in my car, like at 2 a.m. every morning. So the first thing was fixing that for me with an entrepreneurial bent and kind of still being in this 20s, let's automate everything and have it all mindset. I approached my problem, not by like learning how to cook and allocating all this time for myself, which I'd love to do more of now and do, but rather by automating a solution that would solve this problem, not just for me, but for everybody. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. Listening, and now let's get back to the show. What's fascinating, so that's kind of like the idea and the intentions when you started Gobble. What I find super fascinating is that 
the business has shifted so many different business models. So I actually, I know there's probably a lot to unpack, but maybe at a high level, can you maybe talk about the evolution of what did it look like and maybe some of the pillars of how it kind of landed to the business model that is working for you today? Sure. I package all of that into kind of the the stops along the way in this journey to product market fit. And when hopefully things just take off and they just click with your core group of customers. So it started as a marketplace for people to make their home cooked food locally. And then we deliver that food to hungry buyers locally. So we would call it peer to peer lasagna. That was actually awesome because there were folks of all backgrounds, Ethiopian, you know, Latino, South Asian, everything, earning money with pride, making something they love every day that's so personal to them and, and sharing that with people who are fans of their cooking. People would be earning like hundreds of dollars a day and that could become, you know, their primary income source. But what happened there is that in a marketplace situation, there isn't consistency across the products of all the vendors. So in this case, some portions were small, some were large, some food was too spicy, some was bland. And then even when someone got popular, they would get, instead of getting 20 meals a day, they'd get orders for 200 meals a day and not be able to fulfill those orders. So then their quality would go down or they would run late. And so there was a consistency and a scalability problem for this specific kind of marketplace that may not be the case when you have with Airbnb, for example, there can be all kinds of homes, a studio, a castle or whatever, and that works. But when you're giving someone dinner, they expect perhaps different cuisines and meals, but still within the same general characteristics or portions, for example. We evolved from that idea to ultimately centralizing and having our own warehouses and kitchens so that we could consolidate the consistency in our business. And then actually, we had to innovate not just in our supply chain and infrastructure, and also not just on the web, kind of from marketplace to subscription, which we did because people eat every day. And technically, the best food business, ideally, should be able to feed you every single day, if not multiple times a day. And there are people now that use something like DoorDash multiple times a day. So that's why we went to subscription, because we were looking to not just date you one night a week, but rather to be the definition of dinner in your household. Finally, one other innovation that we had was changing from fully cooked food to these 15-minute dinner kits, whereby we would deconstruct a meal into par-cooked components that you can then assemble yourself in 15 minutes and look like a super awesome chef with minimal cooking skills, which I think fits a lot of the women in the world today that don't just want to feed their family out of styrofoam, but also don't want to, you know, need some dough every night. So are totally okay with, with a sous chef behind the scenes, prepping the veggies or the sauces, et cetera. You know, you mentioned something right before you were going through kind of like the history of how you started and how you pivoted is this concept of product market fit. And sometimes you just know when it kind of clicks. And I know those 15 minute meals, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, really took you guys to the next level. So my question is, you know, I know you guys were doing well, you had a lot of demand, which is why the first kind of business model, the marketplace wasn't working. So these are all like, good problems to have. And then you're like, okay, let's bring it internally. But what was the unlocking for you to be like, there's still an opportunity here? And how did you come up with the 15-minute dinner kits that really took you to a whole nother level? Well, I think at first, kind of traditional to Silicon Valley, we innovated 
on the technology. So we went from, we launched a marketplace, then we actually launched a mobile on-demand app with the same chefs and meals, but we'd give it to you on-demand. Then we built the subscription software. Okay, now we're going to deliver to you multiple meals at once. So we were really innovating in the technology and things weren't clicking. So that's when I realized technology really is is an enabler. It's a medium. Innovation nowadays is at the intersection of two things, whether it's like tech and food or tech and currency, like fintech and those kinds of things. There's always a modifier before tech. And, And you have to innovate in that other discipline as well. So it really was just me spending time in the kitchen with our chef that we then discovered the 15-minute dinner kit and and talking to him and me being our user and saying, well, I don't Mm -hmm. want to chop an onion. How do I do this without doing that? And he's like, well, why don't I chop it for you? And if I did all this, would you be willing to cook it? And I said, I don't know. Let me try. And we didn't do that when there was a marketplace because we didn't have our own kitchen. And once we had our own kitchen, only then could we innovate in that space. So I think what's important is you have to also be deliberate about what core competencies you own and will have yourself versus what you're outsourcing or relying on your user, your marketplace, or consultants to do for you. We had a canvas in our computers for code, and only a few years in did we open up the canvas that we owned ourselves to even play with for food. That is so interesting. And it it actually just reminds me, we had Pyle, the founder of ClassPass on. Your stories are similar, similar, but different at the same time. And she was very focused early, early on, on just the tech. Everything was great. They launched and like nobody came. You know, your case wasn't that, but just kind of how you were saying there needs to kind of be two things in terms of really getting a business to click and you can't only focus on the tech piece. And I love that you mentioned even like having ownership of something. And it's really when you guys had the kitchen where you were able to really be involved and be part of the nitty gritty. And that's when like the ideas can come about and testing of different things. And even for my business, we do so much content and people always ask me, what agency do you use? Who do you work with? I'm like, it's all in-house. And what's so beautiful is that we learn, we pivot. So very similar to you, but you know, a different business. So I just want to underscore that because I actually think that's a really powerful point because you can always learn, shift and figure out what the next step is. So, you know, I guess you were mentioning you guys weren't doing as well. You were trying to figure out what the next step is, which is why you're in the kitchen. And the idea of these 15 minute meals came out. And I believe at some point, you know, you only had like $8,000 in your bank. And one of your investors was like, you know, Ushma, you should just maybe just sell the business. Tell us when that was in your journey. And that must be so heartbreaking to even hear that. It is. It is really heartbreaking. So to the listeners out there, I can really empathize with how lonely of a journey this is. It's at once fulfilling and one that aligns with you personally and where you're in flow and feel a purpose. But at the same time, that fire burns bright in you. And it's not necessarily shared long-term with investors or employees. So I think, again, prior to us figuring out our 15-minute dinner kit model and launching that, Ben Silverman from Pinterest famously had shared that the journey to product market fit took a thousand days. And I know other entrepreneurs resonate with that too, but a thousand days is three years. Wow. Wow. And it took us three years as well. So mm. I think people think, oh, seed funding, it lasts a year. It lasts a year and a half. They have these somehow popularized Silicon Valley benchmarks that you just some, you get funding and like you keep raising money every year, year and a half. But the truth is not so. 
it's really different. And so that everyone feels like they're failing because they're taking longer, but all great companies have taken multiple years to find product market fit. And many times people start two or three businesses in the same space before one business takes off. So it was along that journey a couple years in where people, they just may not keep the faith with you. And ultimately, that's why the purpose piece is so important. And ideally, it's aligned with how you're going to monetize. Because if that, it was when I still felt that there was an unmet need and I was also still willing to work on it because of how personal it was to me. So we just kept going. One other point on that is it is the founder and the entrepreneur's choice. So at times, especially in the early days, I put so much weight in what investors would say and their advice for me. But we're the ones thinking about it day in and day out. So I think it is important to take the time to like stand in to first identify what's true to you and then stand in your truth because everything else is just a detour or a sideshow on your path to fruition. Gosh, I love that. It's so interesting because two and a half years ago when I started this journey with the podcast, every woman entrepreneur was saying exactly what you said, like really tapping into your gut, like, you know, the reason, and I didn't have a business back then. So I wasn't really sure, like it made sense to me logically, but it's so true what you said. And I'm curious whether it's investors or people giving you opinions, sometimes like even for me, I get a little confused and I really have to retreat to kind of parse out my thoughts. And I've kind of learned that from my own journey. How have you kind of worked on tapping into like the confidence and knowingness that you know the right answer because having a business and only $8,000, I mean, I've, I've never been at that level, but that's crucial. So any tips that you have to really tap into that? Because I think it's such a superpower that we all have access to. Yes. Well, there's two threads here in what we're talking about. One is what do you do when you're running out of money? And then the other is tapping into this place and your personal North Star and staying true in that direction. On the first matter, I think it's important to know that the path just isn't linear at all. And it could be going in circles or could be going backwards to go forwards. And that's totally okay. So even though everybody doesn't want to admit it, and I appreciated you talking about in the very beginning how vulnerable people are on your podcast, because we went back to join Y Combinator like three or four years into starting this business and having raised money from every who's who in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, but then at a point where their faith wasn't there and mine was. There were many times where I feel I almost irrationally kept the business going when everyone else, even all the entrepreneurs and peer entrepreneurs and the best accelerators would have shut down. So if you want it enough and you're open-minded enough, there is a price, there are solutions, there are numbers at which people will invest and you can eat your humble pie and go backwards if you believe in yourself. And it's one step back, but it might lead to five steps forward. So that's the mindset we had to have in order to get through those tough times. And every time we did that, they say you come out stronger. It's not just a saying. We did. So I'm I'm really, really grateful for that. That's so beautiful. I literally have goosebumps just listening to you. That's really, really beautiful what you're saying. And I think what you mentioned you know, you 
really being passionate about the problem, pushing through, but also being open-minded. I think that's key because I feel like a lot of people are so stuck sometimes on their idea and it might not be working. And it's like, it's so important to pivot. And your whole story is consistently pivoting, trying to figure things out. So I just want to highlight that. And I know at some point, and maybe it was when you were in Y Combinator, you really focused on profitability. You mentioned something in another interview, like cash is king, but profitability is freedom. Uh I love, can you talk more about this? Because I think everybody needs to look at their numbers and really know their profitability. And this is super important for any business owner. (laughs) Absolutely. And I love that you caught on to that because it is, it's like, even when you say that, I like, I feel free. So I'd love for other people to feel that way. Yes. In the past, Silicon Valley has said cash is king, which is, of course, it's your oxygen. You have to make payroll. You have to pay your bills every couple of weeks. And so you need that. So people are, you know, raising money periodically or getting debt, doing what they have to do to have the cash, which is fundamental to run their business. But I think nowadays, yes, the other piece is just as important, which is profit is freedom. And what that means to me is if you're building your business in the venture model, of building businesses, then you have to fit in that framework and operate the way that the venture firms want you to. Otherwise, logically, they won't invest in you and you'll shut down. Mm -hmm. But if you have a profitable business, you can not only invent something new for the world, like your product or your service, but you can invent an entirely different way of doing business. For example, people have profit sharing with their employees. There's C Corps, but there's also B Corps. The Patagonia founder goes off into the wilderness and doesn't talk to anybody for six months of the year. That would never fly in the venture capital firm model where you have to have your board meetings every month or every quarter. So that's the cool part of being profitable. First of all, should be obvious, but you're a real business. Until you're profitable, you're like a subsidized student project. That's heresy to say, but it actually is true. It's just this big reality distortion that we've popularized in the whole world from Silicon Valley. Once you have that profit, you're not relying on any other anybody else to invest in you, which means you don't have to appeal to them or appease them. You can invent everything around you, even how you work, how much you work, and just how the whole organization is structured. It's pretty, it can be daunting, but it's like pretty exciting. Yes, it, it really is freedom. And I know you guys raised money, you said from like the who's who of venture capital, but then you guys didn't know the right business. The business model didn't click, so it still went to Y Combinator. So did you ever raise money afterwards or was profitability the focus? And you're kind of now doing everything that you're speaking about, building the business the way you wanted and all those beautiful comments. <laughs> Right. We did raise money after YC. So to just like skirt the, the top of the, you know, the cake here, we, we raised money, a seed round. We went back to Y Combinator. Then we raised kind of a series A and a series B funding round. So we did go the venture path. And then when faced with the opportunity to raise series C, we had a fork in the road and decided to operate profitably and grow the business that way versus continuing on the venture path. And I think that there are businesses built to be profitable businesses and there are businesses or ideas that are best as venture funded businesses long term. And can you, I think there's a lot of confusion there from your perspective. What kind of businesses do you think fall into both buckets? 
Yeah. Well, there's a large number, but I'll tell you what the best businesses are for the yes. that are like perfectly fit into the bucket. And it's it's easiest to start with the venture model. The best businesses to take venture funding are moonshoot businesses. And so it's like biotech companies that require so much research or building the autonomous car or rockets, things that need large, large investments to completely change the fabric of one area of our society. Obviously, we took a venture path initially for Gobble, but it could easily, it's a business where if we had started with a small amount of funding and we had a marketplace and we were making money, we could have also built it as a profitable owner-owned business from day one as well, and it would have looked really different. Our kind of business and others similar that can monetize from early on have a choice, and it's not as obvious. Yeah, and I don't think we talk about that enough because we typically hear and read about venture-funded businesses. And I think, especially with this podcast, hopefully we're creating more awareness. Like There are so many multi-million dollar businesses that don't necessarily go down that route. And I think it's kind of what you mentioned. like They are still profitable. Maybe you raise a small in the beginning round from angels or friends or family, but right. you can build things in a different way. I mean, and even for my business, we're super early, a year and a half in, we self-funded it, but I was thinking about profitability from day one and we've been getting to grow. We've hired two full-time people. Like it's slower growth than if we're venture backed. It, it's funny. Now I'm like, oh wow, it would be really nice to have a lot of money because I have to be very thoughtful. Like, when do I bring the next hire? When do we want to do that clinical study? So I now understand, but it's like you mentioned, it's actually really beautiful to still be in control of your company and like you get to decide what path you want to go, if we want to change something. You don't need to tell any investors what you want to do. So I guess there's a different way of building a business I just want to highlight because you also had mentioned that. Yes. And you touched on kind of the business decision autonomy and difference of being self-funded or run profitably versus having investors or a board. But we can go even more just direct and basic, which is what is a business to its owners or shareholders? It's an entity that makes money, hopefully. And so yeah. if you take venture money, you were mentioning, oh, it would be nice to have all this money. But that's the razzle-dazzle on the surface. What the truth is, when you have that, the venture model is one that wants to see either like a 100x return or death. And what founders want is to succeed at some level, no matter what. Maybe not 100x, but even for a founder, 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x is great too. So that's where the difference occurs because when you have your own business and let's say you're profitable, you can distribute profits at the end of each year and make money along the way. Everywhere else outside of Silicon Valley in the country, businesses run this way, restaurants, franchises, you name it the incentives are aligned. People grow and they can take millions of dollars out of their business every single year. You could have the same thing with venture investors and you just don't take money out. It keeps going in, 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 in the hopes that you either get acquired or you IPO for like 10 to 100x the valuation. And if you don't, they want you to die trying and don't care if like 90 out of 100 or more businesses die trying. That's the important thing to me, the decision in taking venture money, if you really want to play the game at the center of the game, is really to be a gambler. And if you're that kind of person that just wants to grab market share in a specific arena or wants to go after a moonshoot, 
and you're okay with it not working out and you'll just try something else in three years, that's the way to run that model. But for the folks who are like, this is my passion and I want to build it for 10 years no matter what, and it's okay if it goes slow or makes a little bit, there will always be this tension with the venture investors. It's those kinds of things that I think aren't talked about as much. Yeah. 100%. It's so true. I'm so glad you're talking about this. And even for me, before I started the business, I worked in tech. I worked at a startup, like they raised 50 million on like a product market. Not there was no product market fit, actually. It was just an idea. We were trying to figure it out. So I thought I knew better. And like you were saying, majority of the US businesses are run differently. And I remember my dad and my brother are both entrepreneurs. And they're like, I don't understand. You guys aren't making money. I'm so confused. Like, how does this business work? And I was like, no, what do you mean? Like, we raised money. We had like the top investors. The company ended up selling and did well. And the entrepreneur that I worked with knew the path and has done it a few times. But I remember being so confused about how my family didn't understand the business that we were in. And I'm just highlighting that because like you mentioned, you could run a business that is self-funded and you take off distributions every year. Like I didn't know that existed. I had no idea. And it sounds so close-minded, but there is a different way that you can build a business. But I guess it goes down to what you initially said of like, what are you trying to build? And like, just are you educated on what comes with the different paths that you end up choosing? So I think that's important to kind of talk about. Yes. Yeah. I feel like we can do a whole nother podcast on this, but that was uh, super <laughs> Yes, we can. Yeah. I know. You know, and I'm curious, I know I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but it just came to my mind as you were talking about this, you know, you guys successfully sold big, big congratulations. Yes. I mean, massive deal, right? Last year, I believe, end of last year. Yes. On August 30th of 22. Yes. Oh my goodness. So, you know, you were mentioning like people who do raise money, like the goal is obviously to sell or go public, like have some kind of liquidity event. So was this something that you always had in mind with how you built the business or how did the opportunity of potentially selling kind of come about for you and Gobble? I didn't build the business to sell because I think if I had done that, we probably, when you build a business to sell, most likely it won't because (laughs) you're you're not willing to get through all the hard times. You don't have the passion in you or the heart. Your dice have to be really good and you have to be very lucky on that journey in order to avoid gut-wrenching obstacles. But I think as the business matures, acquisition opportunities start to come up. And so that's very fortunate. So when a business sells, it's very much, it's likely that that wasn't the first time that they had engaged in that conversation or that thought process. And so we had had opportunities or various conversations with buyers on and off for five years or so. And that's kind of the CEO's job to have those relationships and understand the market that's out there and do your very, very best to navigate timing. There are some tough stories about people who left great opportunities on the table because they were just gunning for more and then ended up shutting down their business or selling for pennies afterwards. In our case, we had been operating profitably and the business got better and better every year. We had a few buyers interested last year and just found a really great fit. I felt like after a lot of experience meeting different parties and things like that, it helped me understand that Intelligent Foods, who we sold to, was a great opportunity for us. That's amazing. And I know you're now the CEO of, I believe they're all their ventures. So how has that transition been? Because it's a huge leap in kind of your responsibilities and what you're up to. Right. Yes. It's 
truly no rest for the weary. <laughs> I don't understand. You think success brings you this sort of glow or ease in life. And it's just, it's all a mirage. I'm busier than ever, consolidating entities, even getting teams to get along. It's all very painstaking work. And there are really no shortcuts. Now, everyone under this umbrella needs to be aligned with a new culture and new goals and new teammates. It's exciting for me because it's really intellectually interesting. It's new work. We've inherited like 900 more employees. And it's cool to see other brands and how they built their businesses. You barely get that opportunity to go behind the scenes in other companies and teams that were almost doing living the same life that you were living and how they approach their decisions. So I've learned a lot in just six months and, you know, the work continues. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. We had a friend of mine, Sunira Madani, who's a founder, I think I said her last name correctly, the founder of Stacks, which is like a billion dollar business. And I just saw she posted on her Instagram that she is stepping down her and her brother as a CEO and president. And she mentioned what you were saying in terms of you think once you hit this level of success, they're a unicorn, right? I mean, that is like incredible for a young woman, a minority woman. And I mean, a big deal. And she's like, you think that's going to bring like a level, I'm paraphrasing here, but like bring a level of freedom. And like, you can now enjoy all the success. And she's like, it only gets more difficult and harder. And she went through this beautiful few paragraphs of why she wanted to step down. And of course, she's still a chairman, has majority shares still. So she's still involved. But I just think it's important to talk about this because I feel like so many people start businesses with the hope of once I make it here, right? Once I sell the business at this level, it's kind of like a moving target. And intellectually, we all know like we should enjoy the path. But hearing your experience, hearing her experience, it's like once you hit these monumental metrics, which you dreamed of, you got to make sure you enjoy everything along the way if you can, because it doesn't yeah. bring that like unlocking that you think is going to happen. And the job changes dramatically, which is exciting and interesting, but it doesn't mean that every stage of the company and version of the CEO job is something that kind of sparks joy. I really respect that. It must take a lot of courage to, to share those thoughts publicly. And I really commend her for everything she's achieved and also knowing herself and having the courage to start a new chapter. Wow, I know. It's really incredible. And, you know, you mentioned obviously you're so busy integrating these companies. There, you know, I'm sure your day to day is just super, super busy. But how are you feeling in terms of burnout, your mental health? I know we can all easily go, 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 especially when the expectations are there. But how is that feeling for you in general? Because it's, I'm sure it's been a whirlwind of a few months. Yes, it has. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we kind of can sort of click in to this mode, go mode or ambition mode, and you're not really accessing everything going on with you, or at least in my case, like it's in my off times, so but when I'm on, I'm on. I would share that I think of it as things that are energizing and things that are draining or depleting. And what I try to do, there's a book called Design Your Life, and then there's Design Your Work Life. It's by these two Stanford profs and one of the popular classes on campus there. And they have you do this exercise where you're kind of logging different things that really energize you and things that drain you. I think that's important as it happens for a while so you can see patterns and you don't just make a knee-jerk decision 
and say, oh, it's this relationship. Oh, it's my job. But rather, it's parts of that. It's pieces of that. And you can, at a minimum, be more deliberate about what exactly is burning you out. What percentage burned out are you? And ideally, if you catch it soon enough, then you'd be able to sort of give it a go in restructuring your role, hiring people around you, trying to make a few small changes to see if there's a better lifestyle or version for you instead of a drastic, dramatic, it's too late style change. So sometimes you do have to make a dramatic change in your life, which is awesome. But I do like this sort of reflection and exercise on the way, at least, so you can be more sure about it. I love that, Ushma. I'm actually doing an audit like that now. Every day, I'm just like, okay, what's energy draining? What's giving me energy? What days am I just lit up and I feel like I can keep going? So that is super, super powerful. And I want to be mindful of our time together, but it was such an honor. Thank you for coming here and just being so vulnerable about your journey. But I'm so excited to see how Gobble continues to grow and everything you're up to. So thank you so, so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to being a long-term follower here and hearing more stories like mine. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.